0: Will I ever meet anyone or will I die alone and unloved? Now I've met someone, do they still love me? Will they break up with me? If they break up with me, will I ever meet anyone or will I die alone and unloved? (laughs) Relationships are fraught with anxiety, that's for sure. Is there hope at all when it comes to our anxiety about love and relationships? I hope author and comedian Rosie Wilby will be able to tell us. This is the Anxiety Advantage podcast. The theme for this season two is courage. Having found in season one that anxiety could be our friend and ally, how might we call upon her help to make us more courageous? With courage, we can become freer from the fears that limit us. With courage, we can step more boldly into the life we want for ourselves. So, in this season 2, we ask, is anxiety calling us to become our most courageous selves? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster, and perhaps I might also introduce myself as an anxious person. But I wonder, what would it be like to reframe that idea of myself and instead think of myself as a courageous person. I hope you will join me on this exploration and perhaps also see what that feels like for you, to think of yourself for a change as someone who is courageous. Before we start, I'd like to thank everyone who has left a positive star rating for this podcast, and a special thank you to Fauzia Rahman Greasley, who has written a five star review. Fauzia says In this beautifully presented podcast, Yang Mei Ui offers a fresh approach to the problem of anxiety by inviting us to use our creative curiosity and to consider anxiety as a force for good. The Anxiety Advantage might change your attitude to anxiety and enhance your relationships with others. I strongly recommend it. Wow. Thank you you again, Fauzia, and to everyone who has taken the time to rate The Anxiety Advantage. Hopefully, all this will help raise the podcast up the rankings to be found by people interested in mental health and anxiety issues. Okay, let's get on with the show. My guest today is Rosie Wilby. Rosie is an award-winning comedian, author, speaker and the creator of global hit podcast and book The Breakup Monologues. She has appeared many times on BBC Radio 4 including Woman's Hour, Loose Ends and Saturday Live. She has also been a guest on TV programmes including Good Morning Britain and at major festivals, such as Latitude and Glastonbury. Rosie Wilby, thank you so much for joining me on the Anxiety Advantage podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Now, you are the author of the breakup monologues, uh, and that's about your relationships and breaking up and so on. What prompted you to write publicly about your relationships? Um, and also, what anxieties did you have about writing about yourself and the people in your life in such a public way?
1: Well, yes, I think it's really interesting to have a conversation with you because in some ways we are both celebrating emotions, feelings, either heartbreak or anxiety that have been historically framed as negative. And so we're, I think, reinterpreting those experiences and looking at the positives, perhaps, that can ultimately come from having been in a in a difficult place, having been in an anxious place, having been in a painful, heartbroken place, and then looking at how we perhaps make changes. And perhaps those are really good, healthy, positive changes that we've been prompted to make. Um, something around what has made us anxious or unhappy or heartbroken has actually acted as a, as a catalyst for good and positive change. So, I think breakups have been a really interesting area for me. I mean, I I joke that I was inspired to write about breakups when I got dumped by email a few years ago and felt much better once I corrected her spelling. <laughs> but of course, that's a silly joke because underneath all that, we we do feel completely all at sea when we when we get dumped. Um, we feel like the rug has been pulled from under us and we we don't know where we are. It, brings up all these kind of questions about who we are, our sense of self and identity. As you say, it's interesting to look at how writing about something personal can make us anxious because it's something that's going to be shared. Now, obviously, when you're writing about former partners, former relationships, you have to alert people and let them know they're going to be in something that you're writing. And perhaps give them the opportunity to read something if they want to. Uh, my publisher said, you know, just offer them that opportunity. And if then they don't reply, then at least you've given them that chance to say, well, look, I want to read. I want to see what you've said. Uh, so I did that with, with everyone who it was possible for, for me to contact and, and ask that question. So yeah, to some extent, You feel like you've at least tried to um, reach out to anyone who potentially might not be keen on you (laughs) talking about your, your former relationships with them. But all that said, I have always tried very much to make myself the butt of the joke and to own my own part in a relationship going wrong. And a lot of the journeys that I catalogue in both of my books and in the comedy shows that informed and preceded them is really all about finding my own way and my own part. And it's about my own journey of learning.
0: Reviewing your life, looking back at the breakups and contacting people that you loved and had great passion for and vice versa, but then somehow it all sort of faded away. I guess some of them might be, oh, well, that's just one of those things. And others, it might have gone down in flames. Um what was that like to revisit, to be in contact with these people? Was it painful to rehash it? And was there any sense at any moment where you thought, well, this is my moment to self-justify, to to make it seem as if it wasn't my fault really? And that kind of tension around that?
1: Yes, I do acknowledge in the books that there are two stories to every breakup. Well, assuming there's two people in the relationship, I mean, sometimes you have relationships with, with multiple people in, and I have written about those, those relationships too. But in a sort of traditional monogamous relationship, you've got two people. So you're likely to have two very opposing narratives when it ends. But what's interesting is both of those have a truth. They are authentic to the narrator. Thus factually, if, if observers who were not involved, read those stories, they think, well, how can these both be <laughs> the same breakout? They're completely different. And I think over time, perhaps those narratives start to merge a bit as we, we start to understand our own part in those breakups. And I think that that's why, to some extent, I've really worked a lot around the phrase tragedy plus time equals comedy, because I think when you have left a distance and a space for reflection and thought, and perhaps in my case, real discussion and conversation and friendship with those those ex-partners and spending time with them as friends and uh, in a different kind of space emotionally and in a sort of post post-romantic, post-relationship closeness, which can have its own kind of intimacy to it because you do understand each other in in a certain kind of way. I've even run a business with One X and, you know, there's there's something about having that history with someone and you, you really understand their strengths and weaknesses <laughs> and what you can ask them to do or what they'll thrive at and what they will be not as strong at.
0: It's quite a powerful thing, I think, to write about uh, your own life and to be faced with a sense of your personal responsibility. I did that with my solo theatre show and my the related family memoir, Bound Feet Blues, where I used the image of Bound Feet uh, as a metaphor for my coming out journey from being a very femme, uh, uber heterosexual uh, young woman to actually realising that actually I'm gay and coming out the other end. And Until I sat down and thought about that, there was a little narrative in my young 20-something head. Well, I can't get boyfriends. They're just so horrible. Boys are so horrible. They always break up with me. And then later on, looking back, it's thinking, well, actually, you know what? You had a big part in these relationships that uh, when they worked and when they didn't work. And taking responsibility when you're writing it, it was quite a maturing process. Um, and it made me think about who I was, who I am and that sense of, actually, I have to step up. So, if I can turn that over to you, what was it like to take ownership of your part in, in the breakups and in those relationships?
1: Well, I think any amount of learning and healing from past trauma, past pain, can help you to make better choices about who you want to be going forwards and what type of person you want to have Relationships with in the future, and so I now have a relationship with with my wife. We got married this year, and so the, I guess the idea of the breakup monologues is that you can have lots of breakups and learn from them, and you can eventually figure out how to to settle down if you've learnt from those those breakups and in inverted commas those failed relationships. Although I don't think any relationship that had happy times within it is in any way failed i think it's a great success if in fact you separate consciously and you're able to work things out together and, and remain in some way friends or at least civil and they're able to co-parent or you know still care about one another's families or you're able to uh, care for pets that you had in the relationship and decide you know consciously and and compassionately who who gets to keep the pets and where they'll be best best placed. So I do think that it helps you to figure out what you want to do. And in my relationship with my wife, we are very honest and open and communicate about things that are bugging us that we're not happy about. And We are able to argue and then heal from it. I mean, I think the really heated arguments, you know, they take a while to to recover from. And you can have those nights even in a good relationship where you go and sleep in the spare room and you're, you know, Subconsciously sort of packing your bags and (laughs) and thinking about your next, your next step, you know, once you walked out the door in the morning. And then, of course, in the morning, they're quite sheepish and apologetic or, and you are too, and you work it out. So I think we, we have developed a understanding that the relationship itself is rooted in love and trust and deep friendship and security and that we will most likely work work things out when when there is a conflict. So I, I think because there's less fear attached and less, if you like, anxiety attached to whether the relationship will continue and no one person has sort of assumed power or control and no other person has sort of given the other person all the control. I mean, we might perhaps talk about attachment styles and how you can have what's known as an anxious or avoidant attachment style. We'll maybe talk a little bit more about the relationship psychology around those theories. But um, it's it's interesting how for both my wife and I have had previous relationships where we have been more anxious because we somehow became disempowered in a relationship. Whereas I think in this relationship, we've been conscious to give each other space and some sense of agency.
0: Let's let's pick up on the last point about previous relationships where perhaps you didn't fight fight a good fight. You fought bad fights, if you like, and the anxieties around that. and And I I wonder whether there's something around if you're anxious uh, and you're protective because you're anxious. Actually, you have two protective people. And you've got two knights jousting in a, in full armor, as opposed to not being so anxious and putting your armor down and going to the vulnerable space. And actually, that takes courage. That takes trust. Oh yes, it it definitely does. I think
1: it really interested me to write about the these sort of attachment styles and anxious and avoidant attachment styles, and how classically we often see. Um, an anxious person being somehow drawn to an avoidant person who's perhaps going to fulfill their very worst fears that they are going to be abandoned. You know, this person who, who is a bit non-committal might seem hugely appealing because perhaps they tap into those childhood traumas and memories of, of a parent who maybe left the family home or, or, you know, you felt in some way abandoned by. So. I think all kinds of childhood memories or early memories or early relationships or experiences at, at school, which th- that was definitely a difficult space for me. These can inform our early relationships as we're trying to, trying to find our way. And yeah, that's right. We can become very protective of our, our own narratives and our own. Well, I, you know, this is why I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't you see it? Why can't you understand? And it can be very difficult to understand someone else's perspective and point of view. And in the relationship that I have spoken about a great deal, because that was the relationship in which I was at my most anxious, um, my partner was not out to her family at that time, which felt like it sort of Tapped into a lot of fears about shame, about homophobia, and and things that I had experienced at school in the 1980s when it was really deeply homophobic times in this country. Although, you know, I would, as a comedian, always find the sort of dark humour in those moments. And how she had uh, once tried to tell me that her parents had quite enjoyed the film *Brokeback Mountain*, which I thought was maybe not giving the the best sense, the most positive sense of how how same-sex relationships would, uh, would turn out. But yeah, I think we grow as we have more relationships, which is why I think breakups are ultimately a good thing, because I think each time you're faced with being single for a while and thinking about why the relationship has crumbled around you, you have to think about what you want to do going forwards you maybe have some therapy or you can find in some friends or some trusted allies and people that will give you some honest answers about what perhaps happened or perhaps they just really chosen badly and not not being with someone who was right for you in in any way and perhaps your friends had been thinking all along oh, what's she doing <laughs> you know they're just not compatible why can't she see it um so I think it just forces that time of reflection. And I, I sometimes get suspicious of those people who met as childhood sweet, sweethearts and stay together forever and ever. Cause I think, ah, oh, you know, where's your learning? Because so much of that has to happen surely in those times when you're single and you're thinking about what you want. And I mean, the, the strange world of, of dating now with all the apps that, that, that fosters a certain sense of anxiety, but also. <laughs> It makes you really start to understand and think about what you, what you do want and what your checklist is.
0: Yes. I think, um, again, many layers there because the general, uh, normal world, and I put that in inverted inverted commas, is, you know, a heterosexual model. Um, you get married, you have children, you get the Volvo and, and and the dog. (laughs) And if things don't fit into that model, and, and, and I suppose it's partly not just society's model. We, um, we internalize that. So we, we hold that in our heads. And so when you're in a same-sex relationship or any relationship that doesn't match up to that, um, there is an internal anxiety as well as real anxiety where people are homophobic and, or, or whatever phobic. So there's all that to contend with. And then there's the idea that a good relationship is one that lasts till death to us part. Uh, one partner, and you know, fantastic for those people who met as childhood sweethearts, and you know, a die aged ninety in each other's arms. Wonderful, and maybe they've learned, they've had that skill that they can learn within those relationships. But but for most of us, <laughs> it's a bit of sort of trial and error. And and the the idea that if we don't fit any of those models, then somehow we have failed. Again, I put that in inverted commas. And and what you have articulated is some somewhat more hopeful and refreshing. And I wonder, there's that phrase in Silicon Valley with tech startups, which is fail often and fail fast. <laughs> well, I'm
1: very much an advocate of the fail better kind of philosophy because I believe that comedians are some of the best people at doing that because we have to, as a nature of the bizarre thing that we do in getting on stage to... Talk about ourselves, our vulnerabilities, our eccentricities, our weird foibles in front of a random audience of people often who do not know us, have never heard of us, um, and who judge us very quickly. So I think comedians have to become very agile at developing resilience skills and rewriting the script, thinking on your feet, thinking on the spot. You know, this plan A isn't working. What's plan B? <laughs> It's a survival tactic. So I believe that comedians should have a number of transferable skills that you can then use in your relationships and your life and in perhaps other work projects that you do outside of comedy as well. And I think we become quite flexible in in our thinking. So that's sort of been, in a way, my premise of the book. You know, why would people... Come to a middle aged lesbian comedian to to sort of great get great pearls of wisdom about breakups and heartbreak and life and I think you know I think that as a comedian i've i've had to think about rewriting the script and reinvention many many times, and also as a lesbian because well as we've touched on, sort of faced homophobia but also Lesbians are the world champions of breakups. Don't you, if you know this? And we tend to have more breakups than anyone else in a lifetime. So I believe we've developed skills in doing it more consciously and amicably than anyone else. We we pioneered conscious uncoupling long before Gwyneth Paltrow. So so I do think there's a lot of reasons why I have acquired, in a strange way, in a sort of circuitous way, these these pearls of wisdom about relationships and breakup and our resilience. And how we recover from
0: adversity. Can we touch briefly um on what it's like to be on stage? Uh because you're putting your life out there, you're putting your sexuality, you're putting your heart uh okay, you've you've put, you know, you've created a little anecdote about it, there's a punchline, people laugh. Uh but this whole thing of people throwing projectiles or, or heckling you, there's this um kind of putting yourself in 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 the battlefield. And I guess maybe that is an aspect of growth as well, of building resilience, of not taking oneself so seriously. So, actually, not taking one's anxiety so seriously. That's interesting. And with anything, the
1: more times you do something, you become more skilled at it, more confident at it, and the anxiety reduces. So, many comedians will do, you know, hundreds of gigs a year, and you very quickly become much more confident at what you will do on stage if it's not going well and you have more different sort of, uh <laughs> you know, tools at in, at your disposal, tools in your tool, tool belt, if you like. And it's interesting you do <laughs> talk about this, uh you picked up on this idea of battle because it reminds me in my show, my solo show about breakups that led to the Breakup Monologues podcast and, and book eventually, I came on stage at the start of the show in a sort of a kind of battle. Well, like a child's sword and shield toy outfit from the pound shop and and a cloak that I fashioned out of an old sheep. And I was the ghost of our romantic future. And I had come with a warning that in the future, love was indeed, as Pat Vanita once sang, a battlefield. and. Uh, dating was going to become the ultimate blood sport and we were actually going to somehow sort of vaporize our exes never mind just uh, ghosting them but we could actually sort of get rid of them so this this was my kind of idea that that dating was becoming more aggressive with with apps like tinder where you just sort of swipe and, and it feels a bit like a game and people feel very disposable but i think i think you're right that comedy in itself has a sort of confrontational aspect or it can do and i like to sort of lampoon that aspect of it which i'm doing with a ridiculously tiny shield that you'd have to think very carefully about where you were going to put it to actually protect any sort of vital organ because somebody would probably just prod their sword into a different vital organ um, and you certainly wouldn't cover up very much um and so i'm sort of lampooning that idea of of defense and battle and armor because I had very inadequate armor. So you're actually saying I'm being vulnerable.
0: After my, my breakup of uh, a long-term relationship, I signed up. It was a January thing. I got to do something, you know, different in, in January. So I signed up for a stand-up comedy course with uh, Fran Bush through Hoopla. And it was terrifying, but it was fun. And I took on the, the persona uh, and I of, of the gay but sad divorcee. I didn't talk obviously about our relationship or about my partner. It was all about my response to it. And I found that although it was terrifying, (laughs) it was a wonderfully supportive atmosphere in the class. And it was a way of taking a step back from the closeness that I felt to my feelings and actually taking a step back and laughing at myself, at my despair. And so there was one thing I did with a onesie where it became my girlfriend. So I stepped into the onesie. (laughs) It was like this onesie, my my new girlfriend, and I will never be parted because it's the onesie. It was all very silly, but very uh, empowering because it put it out there and it it separated the pain um, into this this joke. And it was a joke against myself. So I I think there's something about sort of laughing at ourselves that's, that's very powerful.
1: That's really interesting because laughing. Are we laughing? Where's are we laughing at? Uh, because I quote at the beginning of my book. I quote briefly from a lecture that the philosopher Lucy O'Brien gave at a comedy and philosophy conference. I was invited to speak at by the University of Kent in Canterbury, and she was interested in whether comedians are sort of committing an act of self-harm by putting themselves on the stage and sort of saying, oh, you know, look at me, look at this failure, look at this schmuck. Um, And you're inviting the audience to go, oh, yeah, look at you, you're, you know, rubbish. Uh but in some sense, is there some act of reclamation because you're saying, well, this is, this was the old me. Look at what I did before, you know, that I can laugh with you at, at the old me look at me now, you know, at this successful comedian. <laughs> um, but is it actually zero sum game because the person that you're laughing at is still. You, even if it's an old version of you. And actually, what's really interesting to me is when you're talking about traumatic things, if you can talk about them in an environment where you feel supported, where you've actually made this experience funny to an audience or relatable or connectable to an audience and they are responding to you in a really positive way, your memory of the trauma then becomes reprogrammed and rewired and less traumatic. Because you sort of, it's like kind of taking a magic pill, isn't it? People go into a lab if they are suffering from PTSD, and they might perhaps take a beta blocker or, or a drug that would reduce the the stress or anxiety when they're recalling a traumatic event. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's really interesting to me. What what on earth are we doing um, by getting up and, and sharing stuff? But equally, it's a brilliant way of processing.
0: And that's the fine line, the tension between vulnerability, um, and putting on the armor. If you've got too much armor, then you're, you know, you're too strong. You're too defended. You've got too much vulnerability. You're just this goo, um, a little pile of goo on the, on the thing. So it's getting that tension right. So now you also have a podcast, which you've mentioned also called the breakup monologues, and you talk to a range of people about relationships. Um, And you've got um, uh, some celebrities, you've got all kinds of people. What are some of the common anxieties that you have found with your guests in terms of the anxieties within their relationships and the breakups that they've experienced and that they talk to you about on on the podcast?
1: Well, I think revisiting this sort of dynamics that I was talking about before with the sort of anxious avoidance axis of, of our attachment styles I think, you know, you've either got people who are very fearful of losing the relationship, fearful of being alone and somehow being broken up with would be the very, very worst thing ever, even though actually it often turns out that it's the making of somebody and they go off and travel the world or start that business they'd been dreaming of but hadn't had the time or headspace to do so. Um, or you've got people who are fearful of... Sort of being smothered and, and somehow losing their sense of identity. There's often this sense, particularly in my world in lesbian relationships of the sort of urge to merge and how you and your partner become indivisible and you, are wearing the same clothes and you get the same haircuts and <laughs> you wear the same perfume and you, you know, you are just identical. And of course, all your friends, uh, start to see you as a unit and not two individuals. That's one thing I, really struggle with actually is how my wife is now invited to everything that my friends want to do socially i'm like oh i'd love you to just invite me sometimes but then of course they would it because they loved suzanne as well and why wouldn't they invite her but then i'm kind of like well, oh, i just want to go out on my own sometimes <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, conflicts and anxieties even in really healthy fun relationships It's 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 interesting stuff. Actually, one thing I forgot that I wanted to mention earlier is what I found really interesting is in these anxious avoidant relationships that I'd noticed, you often see a pattern of people breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together. It's really compelling because it's dramatic. It feels exciting, but actually you know, it could be a roller coaster that actually you're you're quite scared of. And there was an experiment done where people got off a roller coaster having seen photos of people that they were attracted to. And they reported sort of feeling aroused and turned on. But actually, (laughs) you know, they were just really scared because they'd been on this really, really terrifying roller coaster. But it's interesting how we can sort of conflate those feelings of real attraction with actual fear and we're really actually really scared of this person and what they're going to do i mean obviously this is straying into territory of, of actual abusive relationships but it's fascinating how compelling we can we can find this relationship so someone is not being kind to us not being compassionate and one metaphor i found interesting was i read that a very uh relationship where people continually break up get back together break up get back together each time they get back together the relationship tends to deteriorate in quality so it's a bit like when you open up a jpeg file at many 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 times and each time it deteriorates slightly in quality yeah because we're just always craving how it felt at the beginning and you can never really get back to that
0: I'm listening to Esther Perel uh, mating in captivity. It's a brilliant book around how uh, this urge to merge is actually the worst thing, particularly uh, on the erotic side. And uh, you know, in the lesbian community, we laugh about lesbian bed death, but I think that actually occurs in uh, straight communities as well, where you merge to be so one person. So actually, the erotic aspect is 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 lost. And what she says is for that aspect of love and relationships, you need separateness, you need mystery, uh, and that creates romance. Um, so that's actually uh, maybe it's about consciously, rather than taking a pill and erasing, but consciously separating while in relationship as well you know, it's very,
1: very difficult tightrope to walk. It's very, very difficult balance to achieve that sort of separateness and togetherness and security because you don't want to be so separate that you're not together and that you're not rooted in this companionship and trust and love. Um, But yeah, it's really difficult to remain sexy. It's, It's amazing how many people I've spoken to about how they stopped having sex when they got a dog because dogs are incredible they're wonderful for our mental well-being they're incredibly bonding they're incredibly social but they do encourage these real feelings of of maternal maternal feelings paternal feelings of us wanting to nurture something because in a way it's even a dog is even more childlike than a child because the dog stays like a child it's it's really interesting how when different aspects different elements come into our relationship childhood dynamics change and when you were caring for either child or an animal or you know even just running your home together you've got to Check in with each other. You can't be distant ships that pass in the night. I mean, my wife and I—I guess when we first got together, maybe had slightly different schedules, and and we were obviously living separately in that first year. And and I maybe had eight days in evenings, and she worked during the day. Um, And that was good for separateness in in that sort of sexual energy way. It felt really thrilling when we got together and met up. But also, it's harder to start rooting the you know, in a pragmatic way, the, the sort of real business of the relationship in, in a rea- reality. You know, you do have to talk about money and you do have to talk about these things that are really quite challenging and difficult. And you have to start getting practical when you're going to prepare to live together and then live together and perhaps get married. And it, yeah, it's it's really, really tough. Um And I think in my ideal world, couples would probably stay living separately.
0: But who can afford to do that? Uh, well, after my, my breakup, um, my new partner and I, we have what we call the North Wing and the South Wing in the same household. We're seven doors down from each other. And that has been really interesting because we've we've got our own spaces, but we also come together. And we're—it's still early, and we're negotiating and navigating this new way of being. And I—I—I I, I quite like it. I also don't like it. And it's yeah, it's—it's it's a work in progress. And it's—it is quite sexy, actually, as well. Okay, enough enough about that. I don't have permission to go further in that <laughs> narrative. That's the <a> same. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the anxieties. Let's focus a little bit more on on the courage. What? how do we find the courage to navigate some of these things? Um, and I suppose just to stay with my little bit of the story, which is, I suppose I needed the courage to uh, reframe what I wanted with my life at the end of uh, the last relationship and to take away from that uh, good memories and a respect uh, for what we had and for my previous partner, and then to come to this new relationship and to try To be as open as I can to a new uh, version of it. Because I had in my mind that old story um, uh, of, you know, uh, we live together in the same house and uh, happily ever after. But this is a different situation. And as I said, I'm not entirely happy because I've got that vision in my head. But actually, who does that vision serve? If in fact, in reality, we're happy, that's the result. That's the outcome. That is the great thing. So, you know, this, this story that is just a fantasy I've internalised, how useful is that?
1: I think for me, it's all about losing the fear attached to a breakup, losing the fear attached to being alone. And interestingly, I now really celebrate alone time. I uh, have because- Now it's sort of rarer and, you know, we have got sort of, well, I was going to say a house full of pets. We've got a dog and a cat and for a while we had another cat, Um, but it did feel um, (laughs) a little bit chaotic at times. So now I really, really value that alone time. And I think in many past relationships, I was wrong in thinking that it ending would be a terrible thing. I think we're actually quite strong and resilient. and. Being single can be a wonderful time, which can be celebrated in its own right. And I think culturally, we celebrate that more now than we used to. We used to be very stigmatized about single women, in particular, single women of a certain age and how desperate they must be to find a partner. And we had these terrible words like, like spinster, which is of course still around, but I think we're now more, certainly if you look at some of the social media platforms and women kind of celebrating singledom and being quite triumphant in their, after their divorce and losing weight or getting fit or, you know, buying amazing new dresses that they want to sort of show off on Instagram. And I do think that it's all about losing that fear and. Changing the narrative and almost having a narrative that is about you as a person, both in and out of the relationship and having a solid enough narrative as you that it wouldn't necessarily be completely altered and blown off course into a different direction. If you were to become single, you would still have your goals as a human being and as a comedian or author or all the other things that you are. But perhaps it's about having your own path and purpose that is not going to be always completely upended by your partner being in a mood one day.
0: <laughs> I uh, also love the book Alonement by uh, Francesca Spector, I believe. It's, it's something that I'm really implementing in, in my life, uh, although I'm in a relationship I have specific time that I do my own thing, and I call it my alonement time. After after her book, and what is what has been quite funny is uh, I think what you said about your friends. Uh, there's one friend who keeps saying, "When am I going to meet, blah blah, my my partner?" Why are you hiding her from, from us? And it's not, I'm not that I'm hiding her. It's more that this, you know, you're my friend and, and they've met, but this is my time and this is what I'm going to be doing. And I'm off often for weekends. I'm away, uh, you know, for, for a week's holiday with other friends. Um, and I think that is just so valuable and so fun because this idea that one person can fulfill everything for you. I, I think I misunderstood that or, or misinterpreted what, uh, you know, a life partner is uh, in, in the past. And actually this is, uh, very uh, refreshing for me. I, I feel in, in my current situation.
1: Well, it's not surprising that you misinterpreted that and that I did too, because we were fed so many messages about the fact that a life partner would be everything to you. We see it all the time in in films and we hear it all the time in love songs and how somebody is everything which of course just cannot be true and it's not healthy if we try to implement that narrative we try to make somebody our everything well that's just too much pressure
0: and uh, so you you've mentioned your wife and and getting married did you have any anxieties um around making such a big life commitment that this is sorry to go back to um of old uh, views, the one that you want to commit your life to with? Definitely for both of us, I think. And
1: it's no accident that some of our fiercest arguments happened in the period between being engaged and being married. And things have settled and calmed a lot now since we, we said I do. And we've got those lovely rings on our fingers. And I look at it and feel a real joy. But yeah, we both had our moments in the probably weeks, months leading up to it of thinking, "Oh, god, we're making a terrible mistake. It's I think you have to, you have to question it. You can't just go completely blindly into it. You have to weigh up, you know, how happy you are with this person, the good things that they do for you and make you feel and against the things that actually are difficult and that are not as compatible. And the fact that you, I mean, you know, my wife and I we have quite different tastes in some of the more superficial things like music or films, but it can be annoying, you know, when we're thinking about what film we want to watch and she'll say, Oh God, I'm not going to be able to go and see the new James Bond with you. I'll have to go with my mum. Because uh, <laughs> i 'cause I'm I'm, you know, more of an art house film snob. You know, I'm more into all the things with subtitles and, you know, um, so I won't go and see like the big action dot or whatever. Um and of course then you have to kind of compromise. But I do think we have those deeper values about just how you are in the world and how compassionate you are and how you sort of think about other people and treat other people or, you know, how you think about the world in a, in a more kind of global sense. And, you know, whether you voted the same way on an issue like Brexit, which I think says a whole lot about a person. And it's interestingly divorce rates uh, went up after that, uh, after that referendum.
0: I like what you say about it's it's important to feel anxious or to have anxiety around these big decisions because it makes you pause and think and uh, assess and talk together. Whereas if you just blissfully go, yeah, let's get married, boom, and actually uh, you hadn't thought it through, then that kind of builds up problems in the future. So in the space of this anxiety and the discussions and the arguments, what uh, I, I guess because the focus of this podcast uh, series in season two is courage. Um, how do you then find the courage to go, actually, this is the right thing? Or, or, or we don't know if it's the right thing, but we're going to do this anyway.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly the right thing for, for now. And I think even if you enter into a marriage, and I know some people won't agree with this, I think you have to also understand that it may end. It, it might end. You know, we, we might get divorced and I wouldn't see that as a terrible failure. I mean, hopefully that wouldn't happen for a long, long time, but things happen, you know, so I, I think you have to be open to all possibilities. And I think you also can, if you can talk very honestly and openly, you can put practical things in place as well. For example, a lot of our anxieties or particularly my anxieties. Well no, both of our anxieties were around money, which is something that has not come up as a big issue in my relationships before, because in most of my relationships before, nobody had any money. We were both kind of starving poor artists try you know, trying to freelance our way through the world. Whereas now I have a wife who does earn more than me and who has got a lovely house in, in South London and So there was insecurity on my part in terms of sort of feeling inferior. How do I contribute and so on? What, you know, what am I, what role am I playing? And if I'm sort of contributing to the mortgage, what, what does that mean exactly? We haven't got any agreement in place about, you know, if, if it does go wrong, you know, Suzanne keeps the house and I'd just be booted out on the street. Whereas her anxiety was. Would I, if we ever broke up, sort of expect that I get half of everything and I'm sort of going to be this terrible gold digger? And they're they're the sort of worst case feelings and thoughts that were in both of our minds. But I have to confess those have both gone through our minds. And so money became this quite difficult flashpoint, this difficult issue. And so I think what we've done now is, I mean, what we obviously put some things down on paper, which helped both of us and helped us feel more secure. But also what we've been able to do is because I can't afford, or it's very difficult for me as a freelance performer and artist and comedian and writer to buy property in London. But Suzanne helped me um, to purchase a little flat that we bought down by the sea in Margate. In this beautiful, it's in the old Royal Sea Bay the hospital where people would go and take the waters of the sea to to be healed and restored. And it's it's a wonderful space. And so with her name on the mortgage, I was able to get a mortgage, but I'm effectively paying for it and I effectively own that flat. And so we can use it as a lovely weekend retreat, but also let it out to to friends for weekends and holidays and things like that. So That sort of immediately helps me to feel like I have a sort of foothold on that elusive property ladder, which I never thought was possible for me. And so that allays some of my fears, but it also allays some of Suzanne's fears that we're going to have this fierce battle over, over our, over the house. If, you know, if we got divorced, which we're not, you know, as I say, not planning to do, but I think. Sort of purchasing that space, that other space, helped me to feel some some sense of agency and some sense of being, you know, being a bit more real in the world. I felt I didn't really own anything at all.
0: So it's really about being able to talk about and share uh, uh, and discover one's common values, and to. Take, make a judgment about how important is it that uh, you have to both like James Bond movies or arthouse movies and being able to be honest uh, and to allow the discomfort of difference as much as the uh, celebration of things that you share and being able to support each other but at the same time being practical. There, there's a lot of, on the one hand, this and on the other hand, that and kind of treading the fine line. And I think that that is one of the terrors and anxieties of relationships, but also beautiful joys of it, of difference and the sort of similarities uh, and the tensions.
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) We're all navigating and balancing on fine high wires, aren't we? Uh, But uh, And tiptoeing cautiously through the minefield of love. But We've got to give it a gay.
0: My guest today was Rosie Wilby. You can find links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page, where there are also photos and credits. Go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk, and click through to The Anxiety Advantage. Other episodes in this season two include trauma therapist Lou Labentz talking about anxiety PTSD and The Courage to Thrive. And Jenny Garrett, OBE, who shares her expertise on anxiety, women and diversity in the workplace. You can also listen to all the episodes of Season 1, with my range of guests looking at how we can transform anxiety into a friend and ally. These podcasts share my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. I'm not an expert and have no medical or counselling qualifications. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free. New episodes will then pop into your pod listening app as soon as they are published. Also, if you have enjoyed this episode or the podcast generally, I hope you will leave me a lovely review on your podcast listening app or simply give the podcast a positive star rating. That will tell the Algorithm Elves that this is a podcast worth listening to. And hopefully, that will help other anxious or courageous people find the anxiety advantage. Or please do share this podcast with your friends by email, WhatsApp, or wherever you share stuff. It would be fantastic, don't you think, if more people could find out that they are courageous types rather than anxious types. I'm Yang Mei-Ui. The website link again is tigerspirit.co.uk and please then click through to The Anxiety Advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where I am at TigerSpiritUK. Or you can simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage, and my name, Yangmei Ui. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.